The most exciting, the far the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World, will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it Epcot, spelled E-P-C-O-T. Welcome to this very special place, Epcot Center. Walt Disney's greatest dream is now a reality. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. All of us at Epcot Center are glad to have you as our guests today. Discover Epcot. It's unlike any theme park on Earth. In this wondrous place, the fun and imagination of Disney come together with the innovations of the real world. Dreamfinder and his small friend Figment are the hosts as you ride through a swirling maze of colors, shapes, sounds, and even smells. W Radio, your information station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 34 for the week of September 30th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and thank you for tuning in once again. This is going to be a very special edition of the WDW Radio Show for a number of reasons. First, the content of this week's show is going to be a little bit different, as there won't be any news or rumors this week, partially because I need to record and produce the show early in the week as I am leaving for Walt Disney World. Which leads me to another reason why this week and this show is very special. As you know, October 1st marks the 25th anniversary of Epcot, and I'm going down to participate in Celebration 25, the two-day event celebrating the occasion, but more importantly, I'm going down to be there for the official Disney rededication ceremony, as I believe this is a historic occasion that I felt I needed to witness. And it's that rededication ceremony, and everything else that'll take place that day, which leads me to my first segment, and very special guest. I'm thrilled to be able to share with you my exclusive one-on-one interview with Jim McPhee, Vice President of Epcot, and the person who obviously played an incredibly important part in the events, as well as recent changes to Epcot. I'll announce the winner of the last Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge and give you the clues for next week's challenge, which of course will be all about Epcot Center. In recent episodes of the show, we took a very detailed look at the Journey into Imagination Pavilion and Attraction, and former Disney Imagineer Steve Kirk joined me to talk at great lengths about two of his creations and hosts of the pavilion, Dreamfinder and Figment. Many of you wrote and called in and let me know how much you enjoyed these segments and how they brought back such fond memories. And in fact, they even sparked the imagination of Ron Schneider, the man who not only gave Dreamfinder his voice and part of the attraction, but was the very first walk-around character in Epcot Center. He's going to join me to talk about his memories of being Dreamfinder, sharing stories about the creation, sharing some secrets, and so much more. Of course, I'll have plenty of reports coming to you next week from the NFFC convention, rededication ceremony, and Celebration 25, as well as many more of my regular segments. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show.
October 1st is a very important day in Disney history as it marks the 25th anniversary of Epcot Center. And beyond being an important milestone in Walt Disney World's history, it'll be a day where the online Disney community comes out with a notable presence in the park, evidencing just how significant this day really is. And one of the people who's been at the forefront of what Disney has been doing is Jim McPhee, Vice President of Epcot, and it's my distinct pleasure and honor to welcome him to the WDW Radio Show. Good morning. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited about uh, being able to, to talk today. Thank you very much for, for taking time out of what I'm sure has been an incredibly busy week for you. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. This is a great opportunity to, to begin to celebrate kind of the significant milestone that's coming up and also make sure that all the guests that are visiting Epcot every moment of every day are having a great time. You announced back in June that despite some earlier statements from Disney, uh, that Disney would be holding some type of public event on October 1st. Why was celebrating Epcot's 25th anniversary with the guests important to the Disney company? Well, I think, you know, here at Walt Disney World, we're celebrating the year of a million dreams with a really strong focus on the fact that this truly is the place where dreams come true. And as I reflect back on the history of Epcot, you know, it was nearly 41 years ago where our founder, Walt Disney, had the vision and the dream of bringing Epcot to life. He announced in the summer of 1966 uh, the whole concept around Walt Disney World and introduced to the world Epcot Center at that time, just months before he passed on December 15, 1966. So I think it's uh, very, very uh, appropriate that now, you know, 25 years later from the opening on October 1st, 1982, we're able to recognize the great things that have been accomplished as a fulfillment of Walt's dream coming true with a strong focus on our past, our present, and uh, even more, more important, our launch into the future. So we're excited about that because it pays tribute to uh, our founder, Walt Disney. It pays tribute to all of the things that Epcot is all about being ever-changing and also uh, a tribute to you know our cast members who've been here, many of whom have been here since opening day. We've got about 5,000 cast members who uh, bring uh, Epcot to life each day and uh, certainly is an opportunity to... Um, pay tribute to them, and, and then even more important to all of the guests, whether they're uh, born in fan clubs or, you know, first-time visitors here at Epcot. We have millions and millions of guests who visit us every year and walk away with a really unique experience. So really, it's kind of a, a potpourri of salutations to a great many people who have made the last 25 years what it is today. And what kind of events can we expect to see on October 1st? Well, if you don't mind, I'll just reflect back on the fact that we've really been celebrating this internally for the last uh, three weeks. Here in our backstage hallways with our cast members, we've been counting down to October 1st with uh, milestone uh, memories and uh, tributes to a lot of the uh, design and blueprints that were established there. We did a countdown in 1982. I was actually an opening day cast member. I was standing in the parking lot early in the morning of October 1st, 1982, when the first cars rolled in. And so it's pretty neat to see that we're able to go back and take a look at a lot of the things that we did counting down to that opening and replicate them for our, our cast members today. On October 1st, we're going to be um, celebrating it in a fun way, both on stage and backstage. For our guests, we have a very special uh, guide map. It is a retro uh, look at all of the things that uh, Epcot was all about 25 years ago. It's got a neat cover that will show uh, kind of a reflection back to the way we thought about uh, Spaceship Earth. And then, in addition to our typical guide map information, as you fold it open, they'll have essentially a duplication of the opening day guide map that was here 25 years ago. 
many of you may remember that was a click wheel version where you could spin and kind of really forecast your location and what to do. It's not going to be that sophisticated, but it's a, a great um, a great look back to that. Of course, before guests even get to the main entrance, they're going to arrive and see Spaceship Earth restored to its classic look um, as uh, uh, as uh, as it was on opening day. And we, as you know, we use uh, celebration buttons for many uh, of the events that our guests are experiencing, whether it's an anniversary or a birthday. So every guest coming to the turnstiles will receive a 25th anniversary button. And of course, we have limited edition merchandise throughout in terms of t-shirts and plushes and uh, exclusive pins and, and, uh, and whatnot that will be available throughout the park. And then at 10.01 a.m., which is fittingly um, like October 1st, we'll be doing a rededication ceremony that will feature Aaron Wallace, our Senior Vice President of Operations, Marty Scalar, a legend and an individual who was instrumental in the development of the creative uh, and the construction and bring to life of Epcot overall. And we'll be, we'll be duplicating a lot of the same elements that were done on that opening day uh, 25 years ago. We're excited about that. We also are going to be opening up a... Uh, 25th anniversary exhibit gallery in the Interventions West area that will have uh, on the exterior walls a great look at Walt's dream of Epcot coming to life and then of course the construction photos that will be in and around there and then inside the gallery itself we'll have some never before seen uh, artwork and um, models and things of that nature that will give guests a glimpse as to what Epcot was all about in its infancy in terms of uh, creativity and then uh, all overall development. Throughout the day, we'll have a couple of opportunities for guests to actually have a chance to converse with Marty Scalar over at the Circle of Life Theater, and uh, that'll be exciting because uh, Marty has got so much history and so much um, so much uh, information and knowledge about what Epcot uh, was all about. And then uh, throughout the day, of course, guests will get to experience all the great things that we have going on here at Epcot. Many of our restaurants will have a tribute to the 25th anniversary menus or some of the things that were here on opening day and then just some things that uh, are really are really neat and exciting for, for that day. And the whole evening culminates with a tribute to Epcot uh, as a finale to uh, Illuminations Reflections of Earth with a grand fireworks display and some music that uh, is a tribute to a lot of the things that have happened uh, throughout the course of Epcot's 25 years. So it should be a very exciting day. We think we have already a great product and experience in Epcot overall, and these are what we feel um, great uh, great things for guests to experience on that day when they get here. To say that I, and I think anybody that's listening, is excited about this would be an understatement. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, how much, if any, did the grassroots, I guess to say, efforts of the online Disney community and organized events like Celebration 25 play into Disney's decision to maybe reconsider their earlier position that no public events might take place? Well, I think we're always thinking about ways to celebrate and to enhance, and as you know, whether it's a 50th anniversary of Disney Parks or you know any other milestone that we have here, each of them is going to be thought of in a very creative and unique way specific to that property. As you know, we have been focusing on Year of a Million Dreams and Where Dreams Come True, so it was a natural springboard to think about that as the platform to pay tribute to Epcot in a sense. I think, you know, I'll I'll tell you personally, I was not familiar with um, the uh, fan club efforts. Uh, I know that uh, the moment we got here to Epcot about five months ago, it was something that we wanted to focus in on, again, in tribute to our cast and to our guests. So I think it's uh, I think it's just poetic that the two have aligned, and you've got we've got such a great fan base out there that is so passionate about what Epcot is and what it's all about, and we we've had the opportunity over the last several months to bring some some things to life um, 
and uh, so I think they they work in parallel with each other. Yeah, and it's great. It obviously evidences the fact that you know Walt Disney World and Epcot specifically is so important not only to Disney but the the guests as well. And I think uh, things like this that are going on really kind of evidence that fact. Uh, since you've taken over as vice president of Epcot, you've really been instrumental in making a lot of important changes, both visible to guests with things like the removal of the wand and what's coming up on the first and backstage where cast members, like you said, are being recognized for their efforts and sort of reintroduced to the quote unquote original Epcot Center. Um, is this kind of slight change in focus in direction of Epcot or um, do you think Epcot still embodies that original vision from 25 years? And what do you think the future holds for Epcot? I think today, you know, a lot of people ask, what would Walt say about about Epcot today? And, and that, as you go back and think about Epcot and Walt's vision, you know, Walt said that Epcot would be an experimental prototype community of tomorrow that will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies emerging from the creative centers of American industry, and that it would never be complete. It would always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and always be a showcase to the world for ingenuity and imagination. And I think today, more than ever, we're delivering on Walt's dream uh, in a big way. If you think about the new attractions, the incredible restaurants and merchandise shops and experiences that we have in entertainment across the park, it is bringing the bringing together of worldwide communities and a focus on innovation and technology that is the fulfillment of Walt's dream. And I think we're doing that now more than ever. It's been a great couple years for Epcot as we've had the opportunity to focus in on you know, new attractions, new shows, and, and new restaurants, and I'm just looking forward to uh, continuing to deliver on those surprises and delights with a great cast base here, the 5,000 folks, uh, a third of which are from around the world, who deliver a very culturally diverse and enriching experience. So I think it's the continuation of really exceeding Walt's dreams and bringing them to life, and then at the same time, do what he asked us to do, which is be ever-changing and focusing in on... Uh, truly adapting to what the, the world wants and how the world changes. So I think it's an exciting time. I absolutely agree. And uh, Jim McPhee, Vice President of Epcot, I want to thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Uh, on behalf of all the guests, I want to thank you for all that you've done to commemorate this very important day, and I look forward to seeing you on October 1st. It's a pleasure. I hope to see you out and about here at Epcot. I know I'll be, uh, well, I'll be looking forward to the day as we count down to now just, uh, uh, just a few days away. Like I said, it's a very exciting Thank time. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Luke. Okay, it's time to announce the winner of our last Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge. This was challenge number six, and it was presented by Jeff Pepper, who gave us some very interesting, very challenging questions. What I'll do is I'll read the questions, give you the answers, and then I'll tell you who our winner was. Jeff really talked about some of the characters in Walt Disney World, a personal favorite of his. And his first question was, who was the rowdiest rooster on radio? And the answer is Red Barnes, and you can find him over in Mickey's Toontown Fair. Number two was in Mickey's Garage over at Toontown Fair. There's an autobiography of what Disney animated cartoon character? And the answer to that was Susie, the Little Blue Coop. 
Question three was, where in the Walt Disney World Resort can you find the reference to the character of Captain Bones? That's B-O-N-Z. And that's over at Disney Quest in the Ride the Comics attraction. Question four was, Texas John Slaughter has posted a $10,000 in trading pins award for what thieving character? The answer, Peg Leg Pete. And the final question was, what's the atomic number of Goofonium? And that answer that could be found at Goofy's Candy Company was 66. So we got a number of great, very some very creative, very interesting answers. But our winner for challenge number six is Jeremy Cotto. And his mile marker name was The Imagination Mile. Jeremy's going to win both Disney World Trivia Books, Volume 1 and 2, a DisneyWorldTrivia.com t-shirt, lanyard, and both The Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean from the Magic Kingdom to the Movies books, as well as a certificate of dedication for mile marker number six and entry into the grand prize drawing. Jeremy, congratulations. Go ahead and send me an email with your shipping address. I'll get those out to you right away. And congratulations and thank you to everybody else who entered and played along. But let's go ahead and let's get right into challenge number seven for this week. And the prizes are going to be the same. You're going to get the DisneyWorldTrivia.com books, lanyard, as well as the t-shirt. We're also going to throw in a Mickey Mouse Steamboat Willie Collector Snow Globe. That's going to come from Eric Hollister, who, of course, is also generously donating $100 per challenge to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Foundation to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. So we want to thank uh, Eric as well as everybody else. But let's go ahead and let's get right into this week's questions. Obviously, with Epcot Center's 25th anniversary coming up, I thought I would give some questions this week and make them all about Epcot Center. But it's one question with multiple parts, and here it is. When Epcot Center opened on October 1st, 1982, Future World Pavilions had a number of corporate partners or sponsors for them. Tell me, on opening day, who were the sponsors of the Future World Pavilions? Now, I'm going to leave Communicore out of this, so you don't have to worry about trying to worry about the individual sponsors for exhibits inside, but for the major Future World Pavilions, tell me, who were all the corporate sponsors on October 1st, 1982? You can send your answers to marathon at wdwradio.com. You have until next week to get your answers in. Don't forget, when you do submit your answers, give us the name of your proposed Disney World Half Marathon Challenge mile marker. You get to name the mile marker. And of course, you'll also be entered in to the grand prize drawing, which we'll draw at the end of the contest. Also, be sure you go and visit geomouse.com, where you can see the questions and answers for all the previous challenges, as well as this week's challenge, as well as the due date. And again, get your answers in to marathon at wdwradio.com. Congratulations again to Jeremy Cotto. Thank you again to Eric Hollister from geomouse.com for your donations of the prizes, as well as the $100 for each contest to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project. So good luck and have fun. Recently, we profiled the original Journey into Imagination Pavilion and attraction as part of our Epcot retrospective series. I followed that up with an interview with former Imagineer Steve Kirk, who was not only instrumental in creating the attraction, but along with Tony Baxter, was primarily responsible for creating two of Disney's most beloved characters, the Dreamfinder and Figment. 
And needless to say, the response from listeners was wonderful, as many of you not only had strong memories of, of the attraction, but more specifically, the characters themselves. And a lot of you wrote in and actually sent photos of yourselves or your children with the Dreamfinder, who was really one of the most unique of all the walk-around characters ever to stroll through any of the Disney theme parks. Well, as fate would have it, guess who else was listening and felt compelled to write? That's right, it was the Dreamfinder himself. And no, the, the lack of sleep hasn't made me lose it just yet, but I'm actually talking about Ron Schneider, who was Walt Disney World's original stroll-around Dreamfinder and Figment character, as well as the voice of Dreamfinder for parts of the Journey into Imagination attraction. So we started to talk and thought it would be fun with Epcot's 25th coming up to talk about kind of the lives and loves of a strolling Dreamfinder. So I want to welcome Ron Schneider to the WDW radio show. <laughs> Thanks, Lou. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance if I inadvertently address you as Dreamfinder because I, I have very distinct memories of, of meeting you outside the pavilion and I, and I will do my best not to do my bad Billy Barty Figment impression. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So, I don't mind people calling me Dreamfinder. The job paid pretty good. <laughs> well, like, you know, you're really best known as the man who was, like I said, the, the, the first walk-around Dreamfinder. A lot of people may not realize you were also one of the voices in the actual attraction. Can you tell us kind of which of these roles came about first and, and how you got that part? Uh, well, I started uh, at the time, back in 82, I was working at Disneyland, off and on at the Golden Horseshoe Review, uh, understudying Wally Bogue, the comic there. And uh, they, Tony Baxter came out to Disneyland to do a presentation to employees about careers at WED. Uh, some of you may not know that before it was called Imagineering, uh, the uh, Imagineering arm of the company was called Wed Enterprises for Walter Elias Disney. Uh, he did a presentation about... Uh, careers, and he talked about the journey into imagination, which he was putting the finishing touches on. He held up a picture of uh, these two new characters and mentioned that Dreamfinder and Figment were going to be the only Disney characters at Epcot. There'd be no Mickey, no Minnie, no Goofy. Uh, these were going to be the spokesmen for Epcot. And I saw the drawing of the characters and immediately knew this was something that I wanted to do. So I called a friend of mine named Ken Lisi. He ran the sound department over at WED and said, listen, I'm going to apply for this job. Can you get me a recording of the Dreamfinder voice from the ride? He says, oh, sure, come on down. So a couple days later, I drive over to WED, and Ken meets me at the door, and he walks me upstairs, and he says, I got someone for you to meet. And he introduces me to Barry Braverman mm -hmm. and Tony Baxter. Barry was in charge of the... Uh, uh, image works upstairs and Tony of course was creating the ride and uh, it was his baby and the two of them took me in hand and I had the most amazing day the first thing they did is they walked me back to uh, this big sound stage and set up on sawhorses there was one of the dream catching machines with dream finder and figment sitting on it and they just finished programming the opening scene of the ride and they threw a switch, and I got to watch the entire scene sitting in the middle of this warehouse. Wow. Then they took me upstairs, and they talked me through the history of the characters and the gestation of the, the concepts for the ride and the building and the image works, and they finished by giving me a cassette recording. On one side was uh, the Dreamfinder and Figment doing the opening scene of the ride. The other side was the same thing, but without the voices. And uh, they said, farewell, goodbye, thank you very much. So I took my cassette. I went over to a friend of mine's, has worked at Shy Day Advertising, Jeff Palmer, terrific guy, still a good friend. 
And uh, we put the cassette into the uh, sound booth, and I got on the headphones, and Jeff, who's got a wonderful ear for voices, talked me into doing the Dreamfinder voice that was on the track. It was Now, the voice was done by a fellow named Chuck McCann, who is a uh, terrific character actor. Uh, you'll, a lot of your listeners, if you saw him, would probably recognize him. And the voice he'd done, ideal for Dreamfinder, was that of Frank Morgan, the Wizard of Oz. And he had the whole first scene there, and I practiced the thing until I had it pretty good. And I went home that night, and I left a message on my phone machine saying, Ron's off of the flight of fancy and won't be back for some time, so leave a message after you hear the tone. <laughs> and when I came home from work the next day, ten people had called and hung up without <laughs> leaving a message. And the last person calling was Ken Lisi, saying, give me a call immediately, we need to talk. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be funny if that was Tony Baxter and Marty Sklar, and that's who it was. They had no, calling no. up, I don't know for what, but the next day I was in uh, back at WED auditioning for Exitensio uh, to do uh, the Dreamfinder. Now, apparently Chuck McCann had become difficult to work with, and they were either going to find uh, they're either going to find a new voice or they were going to see someone that they could find someone who could match everything he'd done. And so the next day, I was in a recording booth going, Skyrocket saw towards outer space. Imagine yourself in an infinite place. And, uh, well, the rest of the, uh, the last half of the ride. And that's how I wound up doing the, uh, doing the voice. From there, how I got the job was I marched upstairs to uh, Sonny Anderson's office at Disneyland. Sonny Anderson was head of uh, talent booking. And uh, a parenthetical thought here, people sometimes ask me, how can I get a, uh, one of these wonderful jobs at Disney? And I, I'll tell you the secret that I found, and that is the first job, thing to get about a dream job about Disney. The first thing you have to do is get a job at Disney. It doesn't matter what it is. Because if you can get into the company, then you can use the different uh, assets of the company to find yourself a really good job. Since I was in entertainment already, it was a simple thing for me to go upstairs to the man in talent booking, just as it was an easy thing for me to call a guy at WED and get their assistance. So and Disney is always promoting from within. They have always have auditions for just employees and like this. So I went up to Sonny's at, at Sonny Anderson's office, and I said, I'd like to do uh, this Dreamfinder and Figment character. So he picks up the phone. He calls Florida, and the guy who was head of entertainment for Epcot was an old friend from my junior high school days who knew me as a big Disney wannabe, and he was thrilled to have me on board, and I was in like Flint. You, you talked about, you know, you mentioned names like Wally Bogue and some of the people that you work with, Exitensio, but you were really a Disney fan first. I mean, that's how you, you got into the company? I was at uh, Disneyland the day after it opened, uh, July 18th, 1955, because my father had done some of the air conditioning work <laughs> on one of the buildings. So we were there, the, our family went you know a couple times a year and uh, in 1966 when Walt passed I was it just struck me what a tremendous impact he'd had on my life so the next time I was at Disneyland I, I broke off from the family and I went and I sat and I watched the crowds and I suddenly became very fascinated with Disneyland as theater that it's a stage where the guests step up onto the stage and they're actually the stars of the story and I suddenly wanted very much to work in that atmosphere I'd already had some experience with puppetry and ventriloquism and magic, and I'd been on stage a little bit, but I was just fascinated with the way theme parks work. So I suddenly 
acquired this whole new hobby. I was researching everything I could about the history of Disneyland, how theme parks were designed, how they operated. And uh, I started, I knew in 1970, I saw Wally Bogue at the Golden Horseshoe for the first time, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I got my first theme park job, got into Disney, issuing wardrobe for Christmas mm. 1970 uh, Fantasy on Parade. Following summer, I was at Magic Mountain on its opening opening crew, and I was. And over the ten years there, I worked at all the different theme parks and a lot of the theme dinner shows, learning everything I can about the operations. Uh, at the time I was hired at Disney, I was at Magic Mountain doing a medicine pitch, just like Wally used to do with the Golden Horseshoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working at the Six Flags Magic Mountain in the Spillican Corners, the Crafts Village. And uh, so, when in 1980 they held auditions for the Golden Horseshoe. So they needed a, a second cast for the horseshoe for the 25th anniversary. They were going to double up on the shows. Uh, I walked in and I was able to show them exactly what they wanted. Wow. So how does it how do you go from, okay, you've, you've now done the voice, you, you filled in the voice um, seamlessly. I mean, the, the, the distinction between you and Chuck McCann is really uh, non-existent. But how do you go from the doing the voice work where you're given a script to saying, okay, I need inspiration to become a real walk-around character that's going to have to, you know, go off of a script and interact with guests. Where do you kind of get the inspiration for that? Well, I started with the source material that uh, afternoon with uh, Tony and uh, Barry. They um, talked me through the history of the characters, and especially important was the story of how they created the concept of the pavilion itself. In trying to... um, quantify something as ephemeral as imagination. They broke it down into three concepts, collecting, storing, and recombining. And uh, collecting sparks of inspiration, which is happening, what's happening in the first scene of the ride, storing them in the dream port, which is what's happening in the second scene of the ride, and then recombining them into new things, which was the rest of the ride. And it's like got this three-act structure. So I knew that the character was going to be an adventurer. He flies around in this contraption. He is fascinated by absolutely everything around him. And he's constantly thinking creatively about life in general. In the first seat of the ride, of course, he creates Figment from these sparks of inspiration. And so Figment is his child. Figment is his own creation. And the characters were always designed to be a little left brain, right brain, uh, left brain uh, dream finder is in the more practical, constructive side of creativity. Figment is the wild, untamed child. But I always knew dream finder needed Figment and loved and appreciated Figment, that whole side of creativity. This immediately gave me the relationship. Uh, one of the other things Tony told me about dream finders, the dream finder was always intended to be uh, an updated version of that guy who used to host the wonderful world of color on NBC. <laughs> uh, the, of, of the encouraging uncle, someone who saw the good in people and saw the creativity in people and wondered at it. And so there were my inspirations. Of course, I had the uh, Wizard of Oz voice going for me immediately. People react viscerally to that when they hear it. Uh, all these different elements started to put me on the right direction. The first thing I did was I sat down and I wrote three poems for Tony Baxter. So I had all these different elements, and this set me in a certain direction with uh, what I was doing. The first thing I did with about DreamFinders, I sat down and I wrote three poems, one on collecting, one on storing, one on recombining, in the style that I thought DreamFinder would. I just sent them to Tony as a little love letter and a thank you. 
And then I started doing all the research I could on uh, dragons and the history and physiognomy of dragons. I've done, you know, having worked in all the different theme parks, I've acquired all these bizarre hobbies because the way you work on a theme park job or any kind of role like this is you start reading everything you can about a particular topic, not looking for any particular piece of information or piece of dialogue, but you're looking for an emotional feeling and that you're going to try to engender in the guests. Uh, so I've, over the years, I've, I know everything there is to know about the Canadian Pacific Railroad, <laughs> uh, uh, U.S. Cavalry Forts, uh, traveling medicine shows, uh, the history of movies. All these are all subjects that I've created characters working in different places, and I've done a lot of research on. So I know everything there is to know about the physiognomy of dragons and why they can fly and how they can breathe fire and all this. Really, <laughs> I did all this research into the process of creativity. Um, everything Dreamfinder says in the uh, ride is in rhyme, so I did all this research into speaking in rhyme. Uh, all these different aspects of what I thought Dreamfinder would do. I found a book called Creative Dramatics about playing improvisational games with kids, and this really struck a chord. And I had this idea that I was going to be able to go out there as this character and improvise stories with children. And that always seemed to be a major part of what Dreamfinder could be. So I. I kept working on different things. At one point, I even started exercising. I got a thing for exercising the grip on my hand because I knew I was going to be spending eight hours a day with my hand up the, dra up the dragon. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to be in good shape for that. Uh, what else did I do? Oh, it's, it, it just was amazing. I bought all the pictures and paintings I could of wizards and uh, exotic flying machines and just surrounded myself with these things. Which, of course, when it finally came to going out there and being the dragon, all the preparation was kind of went out the window, as these things tend to do. Because what happens in themed entertainment, you're always trying to deal creatively with your, well, this is a phrase that I use, deal creatively with operational reality. Right. In other words, you have to deal with what the guests are bringing to it and using that, bring them into your world. So when I finally got out uh, here to Orlando, it was uh, September 18th, 1982, and we started pulling this thing together for real. The, uh, another very great truism about themed entertainment, whenever you're doing a new show like this, is it always takes at least a year before everything is there to do the show right. So you're always scrambling at first. They made me the beautiful suit. They had a dragon puppet, which... Um, was looked pretty good, but it was not designed for comfort or ease of use. Uh, the wigs and beards and mustaches were all made out, out of women's wigs. So the mustaches had the wig backing on them. They were about a quarter inch thick. When you put them on, you had to smile when you put them on, and you couldn't stop smiling or they'd pop off your face. <laughs> and it must have been really comfortable in the Florida heat, too, so... It was, it, that was a bear. Uh, they, uh, of course, the Kodak people wanted me out in the garden, posing in the garden area. That's what the garden area was there for. But they never could corner me there because, I you know, I was in the Imagination Pavilion. I'd run at the building. It was my home. So every time they would say to me, we want you in the garden, I would always answer, I'll be in the garden unless it's too hot, too cold, too windy, too rainy, too muggy or too buggy. 
buggy being the love bugs that come out twice. They're mm-hmm. a nest in your beard, especially when it's covered with hairspray. So I would, I would constantly be moving, and I would go outside sometimes just bits and pieces of the day. Uh, my favorite set of the day was uh, first thing in the morning when there was nobody in the pavilion. They hadn't reached the pavilion yet. I'd be out there uh, virtually alone in the building with Figment. And uh, one of my favorite things to do was to walk out into the garden area. And we'd walk around the garden area and wait for a monorail to come by. And then I'd stand with my back to the monorail. And like I was talking to Figment about the plants or the fountains, showing them to them. And he would see the monorail first. And he'd freak out. He'd get my attention. And then we'd both turn around and wave. And you could see the whole side of the monorail, solid people, <laughs> smiling and waving. <laughs> Then I'd go up to the image works, and there'd be some kid there uh, with the magic palette, you know, drawing mm-hmm. on the video screen. And Figment and I would silently come up behind the kid and just watch for a while. And then at some point I'd say, you know, he's really pretty good. <laughs> and the kid would turn around, having just gotten off the ride, and have a connection fit. It was wonderful. I, I can imagine. Well, you know, let's talk about that for a second, because now you're you're going from being this voice. You're making this transition from a voice character to a live character and, and you know I need to I want to understand kind of how much creative license you had with the character how much they kind of gave you to work of obviously the guest interaction is such an important part of it but let's talk for a second if I understand correctly you had a pretty interesting to say the least first day on the job as the walk around character uh, yeah, I had a, a couple of them doing various things but my first day doing it in the park was um, uh, we got a call, I will be up uh, out at the Italy Pavilion at 7 a.m. with uh, Brian Gumbel and the crew from the Today Show. And uh, they, I, am, I will hesitantly direct all of your listeners to YouTube. I'll actually put a link up in the show notes this week so people can go right to it. And you will see my very first public performance as the Dreamfinder. And... Please forgive me. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, it's great because that's people's first time that they've ever been introduced to this char- into these characters, um, and it and it's wonderful. As we talk about tomorrow, here's a bulletin for you. There is no imagination crisis in this country, especially here at Disney World. We've gathered a panel of imagination experts just to prove it. Here's Disney's newest authority on imagination from the Imagination <laughs> Pavilion here at Epcot. He is Dreamfinder. Hello there, Brian. Good to have you here at Epcot. <laughs> and who is Dreamfinder? Well, I'm kind of the host of the Journey into Imagination show out here at Epcot Center. I travel all over the universe collecting the stuff dreams are made of. Sounds, colors, ideas, anything that sparks the imagination. And I store these sparks in the Journey into Imagination Pavilion. And the and I recombine them into new ideas and new inspirations. I am left to assume that you do not dream alone. Who's your little purple oh, Well, friend? this is actually something I dreamed of. This is my figment, and I'm very proud of you. You see, I threw together the, the two tiny wings, the nose of a crocodile, the horns of a dilemma, and all the calm and reserve of a small child's birthday party. 
<laughs> and so he, with his, his curious and naive way of looking at life, shows me things that I would never have guessed in my own uh, knowledge and experience. If you are the spirit of imagination, then the gentleman to your left certainly might be called the father of imagination. He is one of Disney's Imagineers, and he helped come up with the idea for Dreamfinder and Figment. His name, Barry Braverman. We welcome you. Um, Imagineer. I had the feeling I just invented a new word. Is that a profession? Is that a personal statement? Well, it's a term we use at WED to describe what we do. We think it's a kind of a unique blend of art and engineering, so we've coined that phrase. Imagination is a very difficult thing to characterize. It's difficult to, to capture and picture. What is it you've set out to do? Well, what we've, we've tried to do, as the Dreamfinder indicated, is give a very simple kind of a scheme for how the imaginative process works in this pavilion. And, and what we've done is boiled it down to three steps, gathering, uh, storing, and then recombining into new things. And we, we want to say to people that imagination is something we all share. It's, it's a common ability that we all have. And all we need to do is, is look at the world in an open and, and uh, risk-taking way, and, and we can begin this process. There is room for imagination in your future vision of the world, but it's imagination of a different sort, right? Well, we are trying to show uh, kind of the arts and the softer side of, of, of the imagination uh, idea here in this pavilion. Uh, energy and transportation and communication stories are being told well in other parts of the project. And our goal was to kind of remind people that uh, without the arts, without somebody with a, willing to take a risk and have a new idea, you really don't have much of a future at all. You actually do blend um, imagination and technology, such as we're seeing here, where people by dancing on various color patterns can what create music yeah this is part of uh, an area we call the image works and it's a hands-on area where people get a chance to try out new technologies for creativity and so we see them uh, dancing along stepping tones uh, manipulating these enormous kaleidoscopes that are just like the ones you used as a child but but much larger and this is a videographic system that we created for the image works called magic palette it allows the guests to load up their brush with different electronic inks and paint right on a, a CRT screen let me ask you by using the technology Technology, are you not in, in fact taking away some of the creativity? I mean, doesn't one have to start from point zero to be totally creative? Well, that's really not the position we're taking. We think that, that these new tools just simply enhance the palette of, of things that you can work on. Uh, we, we always tell the story about the invention of the piano. Probably at some point someone thought that was a, a very threatening machine and would end creativity, but in fact it's, it's made things more creative. And we feel the same way about computers and sensing devices and so on. And what of Dreamfinder and Figment? Do you fit into the family that includes Goofy and Pluto and Mickey and Snow White and Cinderella, or are you truly apart? Are you the future? No, I'm uh, part of the same spirit, actually. I'm more of, of the original spirit. The same thing that led to them created me. And as I was there when they were created. Then let me say thank you to all three of you. Barry Braverman for giving us these two, for Dreamfinder, and for Figment. Figment, take care of yourself, will you? It was, it was a real hoot. Uh, I did not know what he was going to ask me. I had practiced, because I, I learned about doing this for the theme parks, I had practiced answering questions about Epcot as the character. I wasn't ready for the specific questions he asked me. But uh, I was on there with Barry Braverman, as a matter of fact. Uh, his, um, uh, Brian Gumbel, I was sitting next to him with Figment, and then on the other side of me was, Brian, was uh, Barry Braverman talking about the Imagination Pavilion. And uh, the one thing that I will never forget is uh, Brian spoke to me for a while, and then he went to asking Barry questions. And you'll see this on the video. And at some point, as uh, they were talking and ignoring me, I looked up, and on the monitor I could see that you could just barely see the tip of Figment's right. horn in the shot. 
So, and I had practiced sticking my fingers up in his forehead and wiggling his, his horns. So I leaned him <laughs> into the shot and wiggled his horns. And I, that was my first moment as Dreamfinder that I'm actually very proud of. That uh, that came off as nicely and looked like it was practiced. Well, the thing that I really uh, liked about that clip, just real quick, is that, again, nobody knew who Figment was, but you could instantly get a sense of his character and his innocence and his playfulness without saying a word, just by the way you were able to manipulate him uh, on screen. I think, you know, something more than the way that he was manipulated, because that char- that particular puppet was stiffer than any of them. Um, it was the way that I spoke about him, I think. It was the way that um, Dreamfinder cared, obviously cared about Figment and loved him. So much of the success of the character uh, was in his design. So much of it was in the wonderful job Billy Barty did as his voice. But I think a lot of the reason people love him and remember him so fondly is that in the ride, he is he is the star of the ride, and it, he's treated with such care and such love and so much appreciation. And that's something that I always try to put across. And I think that that came across right from the start with, um, with our work on the Today Show. Uh, another parenthetical thought, one of the first things I did in the character late in September was we went down to Florida and did the Orange Bowl Parade. Uh, Kodak had built an amazing float that had a huge full-size recreation of the flying machine. And uh, Figman and I rode it right down through the middle of Miami Beach at night. And everyone knew who we were. Now, these people had not been to Epcot, but they were all going crazy, screaming Dreamfinder and Figment and waving it. Everybody seemed to know we were. And I think that's because kids never change. When you see an ad about Disneyland in 1950, you're looking for the Mickey Mouse costume. Mm -hmm. And when people looked at the coming attractions for Epcot, everybody latched on to Dreamfinder and Figment because they were just so beautifully designed and beautifully rendered, and they heard so much about the Imagination Pavilion that I think that 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 also was in our favor that very first day. Now, of course, when I finished the Today Show, the next thing I had to do was I had to walk around the World Showcase Lagoon, go over to Imagination, and appear in the Epcot Center opening television special with Danny Kaye and Drew Barrymore. Mm It's nice to meet you. <laughs> and this is my assistant and good right arm, Figment. <laughs> I, I, I understand you're in charge of some uh, very creative things. I, I, I would think that would be terribly interesting. Right you are. For right in there, imaginations everywhere. The visions once inside your head exist inside that place instead. Imagination is my game, the sparks of which ignite the flame of your own creativity. And that's real great for you and me. <laughs> uh, which, for me, I there are two people that are the reason I got into entertainment. One was Jerry Lewis and one was Danny Kaye. And uh, so uh, doing a scene with him and Drew Barrymore straight off of uh, E.T. was a hoot too. And that is also on YouTube and that also, for me, is an embarrassment. Particularly, <laughs> <laughs> particularly the beard. If you look at the way the beard is, I've been out in, um, you know, I've been in that character at that point for about three or four hours, always in public eye. There was no restyling of the beard. It was the glued on back then. Uh, and so the beard has started to collapse and uh, looked very, very strange. Um, but uh, we got a little bit more in with uh, me and Figment there, and they did. Uh, they also, it's a great early example of how I overdid the, the voice at first. It took me a while to get relaxed into him. Um, but that that was my first day as Dreamfinder and Figment. Well, you know, you, you make uh, a subtle reference to 
about how you talked about the character with love, and, and you still do, because I, I caught, as you were talking about, when you were telling your monorail story, you talked about Figment in the present tense, and you talked about him as a person, not as a puppet. And that kind of, the, the feeling that you have definitely comes out, and, and that you were able to attach that same type of innocence and curiosity to this puppet by the way you talk about him and, and by the way you moved him. So I think that's why the character was so successful and so memorable to so many of us who, as, as kids, saw it and made such an impact on us when we saw him as a real walk-around character. Five years of doing the character, uh, you've got, you know, you got to form some kind of attachment, first of all, because you are physically <laughs> attached. Uh, I had to, in developing him at first, because I immediately was thrown into playing two characters at the same time, which was something I had not done in a long time. Uh, so I was, I had to find a way to very quickly learn how to bring him to life in a way that defined him as a separate character. So when people looked at us, they would see uh, a, a human being and this totally independent thought process that is Figment. Uh, first thing I learned to do was I learned how to aim him. Uh, one of the important things that uh, the Muppets do that's very important in order to bring a character to life, you have to have him be able to look at what he's looking at. There is a what they call a magic triangle that runs between the uh, audience's eye the character's eye and the character's nose. And when that's lined up correctly, it looks like the character's actually looking at you. If it's just a little bit off to one side or the other, it looks like the character's staring off into space. And so I had practiced for weeks uh, aiming Figment. I would ride on the bus around the backside of, Ep of Epcot when I was in character. And I would ask the people in different parts of the bus, is he looking at you? Is he looking at you? Can you? Did he, you know? And I, I got the feeling for that, and I can do it to this day uh, without looking at the character. I can. I know exactly where his gaze is. The other thing I had to do was I had to find a different thought process for him. So the first thing I did when I went out on set is I took all of my affection for the female form, and I put it into figment. I made it an automatic rule that if he saw a pretty girl, he'd go nuts. <laughs> Now, we got a little more sophisticated than this very quickly, but it, it gave him an independent action. I could be talking to a guest or posing for a picture, but all I had to do was realize that there is a cute little girl or a cute lady, and Figment would go, right, and I'd have to grab his arm and pull him back. And if I did this quickly enough so that they wouldn't see my arm <laughs> holding the dragon, it looked like he was about to leave me. And this is the first of the bag of tricks that we used it got to a point at some point where I could hold two conversations at the same time hmm. I could if there was a small child who was related to Figment down on my left um, I could actually hold a conversation with an adult while Figment was looking down at this child and reacting to what the child was doing well, I can imagine in the five years that you did the walk-around character, you must have an incredible amount of stories and, and memories from meeting so many different guests. Anything, any stories or any kind of moments specifically stick out in your mind? How long do we have? <laughs> well, let me go back, first of all, to a, a point that I made before about dealing with operational realities. When I got on the, out on the street with Figment, I didn't know how the guests were going to react, and... The, so I expected that we could play creatively, you know, we would be making things up and telling stories, and I really didn't, wasn't sure how that was going to work, mind you, but I was, that's what I was looking for. And, of course, all any adult wants to do 
is have their child's picture taken with the monkey. The thought being their kid that had his picture taken with the monkey, so my kid will have their picture taken with the monkey. (laughs) And I will walk up to them and I will put the child down and the child will cry out in delight and throw their arms around Dreamfinder and it'll be a gorgeous moment and I'll take the picture and we can go someplace that's got air conditioning. (laughs) That was operational reality for the Dreamfinder. I immediately had to find a way to get the guests to play with me before they took that picture. I had to find some way to relate with the child, relate with the audience, put on a show at the same time for everybody, and uh, and do all this without making anybody uh, mad. <laughs> almost <laughs> establish a trust. Almost establish a trust with them before you you play. Oh with yeah. Them. Oh, definitely. With the children, you definitely. If you're going to get close to a small child, you better have trust by you know first. So what quickly evolved was my own version of a cue line. First of all, because of the way the dragon was built, I was no good from the back. If people stood behind me, they would see how the trick was done. So I would usually find myself with a black, with my back to a planter or a wall, and I would um, get all the people who were waiting to have their picture taken, and by my body movement, the way I used my voice, I would form them into a big semicircle around me. Uh, and I would remember who was the first person there, and I would sit gesture to the uh, child or to the parent, come on over to the center of the circle. And thus, boom, everybody is immediately being uh, entertained by the way that I deal with this family. And over time, I would develop about eight or ten standard routines that would work under different circumstances with different types of groups, and I would just rotate those through my brain as I pulled the people up. And generally, people would not see the same piece of material twice. This is all the practical side of dream finding. Uh, the first thing I would do is I would find a way of introducing the dragon. For example, I would ignore him. I wouldn't talk about him. I would just talk to the parent. I'd say, where are you from? And all the time, Figma's looking at them, looking at me, looking at them, looking at me. Looking at... And eventually, the parent would always say, what is that? <laughs> I'd say, oh, you see him too? <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, the kid would walk up. If the kid walked up alone, Figma would look at me and he'd move his lips. And, of course, I could hear him. And uh, I'd say, I don't know what it is. I'll ask, excuse me, what are you? <laughs> Children love that question because they, they're not used to thinking like that. So sometimes they'd get their names. Sometimes I'd get, I'm a boy. Sometimes I'd get a look of, what are you talking about? And, um, and then I would explain them to Figment. I, I finally, the basic idea is that I was collecting sparks of inspiration. There's a child right there. You can't get any better than that. And I would find different ways of introducing them. If I would meet a group of young men traveling with their peers, and they're all 12 to 16 years old, and they're too cool for this character, but they're interested in the trick, and they're interested in, the, in, in seeing us. They just saw us on the right. I found the thing to do then is immediately not to push anything out, just to go back on my heels and mirror their energy level. You know, they're looking back and going, yeah, hi, what are you? <laughs> so I'd be the same way to them. And they would immediately, since I'm not bowling them over with smiles and gags and, oh, come on, you can do better than that, they, they would warm up to you. They would warm up to you. So uh, that was the basics of going out there and playing with it. Uh, every, every environment was different. And as far as amusing stories, oh, geez. Uh, I'll tell you my, my absolute favorite first. 
uh, was uh, the day that I was coming off of the set and walking through a crowd trying to get to my dressing room without being swamped and stopped all over again. And I break through this one group, and there's this little five-year-old black child looking up at me, his eyes as big as saucers. And he's not moving. And there's all these adults around, so I realize that I can just deal with this child, spend time with him, and I won't be swamped, and then I can move on. So I kneel down, and I introduce him to my arm, and uh, we talk for a while, and he's pretty much awestruck. And finally I get up, and I said, well, I gotta go now, goodbye. And he looks up at me with tears in his eyes, and he says, bye-bye, Jesus. <laughs> and, now, and now he's crying, goodbye, Jesus. And everybody is dying. They're all just roaring, laughing. And I stood there waiting for a full minute. And I could just hear the kid when he went home. Yeah, I met him. He has two heads, and he called me by my name. Um, it was, uh, that was the kind of thing that you, you would get. Uh, there was, um, a little girl in a wheelchair who was blind and I met her up in the, uh, up in the top of the uh, crystal area. I walked up and, uh, somebody, her parents pulled me over and, and introduced me and I talked to her for a while. She was about, I'd say 12 and she petted Figment and we talked about imagination and she said to me, would you like to take an imaginary trip? And I said, oh, yeah, where do you want to go? She said, uh, let's go to the moon. I said, okay. I wasn't sure how we were going to get there at the moment, but I took her hand, and this little girl left the representative of imagination in the dust. She described the whole trip and where we were going and what we were doing and how we were getting there. And I could only just sit there with my lips hanging. It was the most amazing thing to, to, to write on this child's imagination. Uh, that's one that stayed with me for a long time. The Give Kids the World kids, of course, were very touching. The very first time someone came back into my dressing room and said, um, we got to give kids the world outside. And they made the mistake of telling me what the child had and how long he had to live. So when I went out there, I was a wreck. So from that point on, whenever anybody said, we've got some Give Kids the World Day, I'd say, that's enough. That's all. I don't, I don't want to know anymore. And then I would just go out and play with them. And, um, of course, the sweetest people in the world. And they're just so thrilled to have us. We traveled. We, we visited some hospitals in Miami on tour. Uh, would walk into the room, and the people would just uh, light up and, and love it. I met a lot of... Uh, a lot of celebrities. Um, I met Michael Jackson and Red Skelton and uh, Ray Bradbury, which is funny because I grew up four blocks from where, where Ray Bradbury lives. And I'd often seen him, but I'd never met him. <laughs> uh, but it it was uh, it, it was an amazing experience. The, the the whole interaction with the characters evolved. When you do something like this for a long, long, long time. Every so often, you'll come to work one day without realizing you're tired or you're not feeling quite right, and suddenly you'll find some whole new aspect of what you're doing, and you'll find a new ease in it. And like you said, Figment uh, becomes a separate person for you. The two things I miss most about the job were the kids' faces and having the dragon on my arm. Um, if I put my arm up in that horribly uncomfortable position, I can still feel him there. Hmm. I, I can imagine... You know, I can't. Maybe I actually, I can't imagine how rewarding it must have been to to do what you did, have such an impact on people, and, and make them happy every day. But let me ask you. I guess 
kind of as your role and, and as a fan, what was your favorite part of the attraction itself? I'm sure you had to have had a favorite part, other than the part you voiced, of course. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a part that nobody else got to see except me. And that was, remember, the ride didn't open until months after Epcot. Mm -hmm. And so at least twice a day, I would, on my break, put Figment away, and I would walk through the ride. And I'd watch them putting the thing up. And this was the biggest thrill. I mean, I've, I, I, when I was in, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. This is a secret. No one's listening to this, right? No, not at all. Okay. Just me. Um, when I was 16 at Disneyland, I used to walk around backstage. And I have walked through most of the attractions while they were running. Security was a lot looser back then, kiddies. And don't try that today. Uh, but I was always fascinated. So to have a whole ride built around the character that I was playing uh, was, an, uh, was an amazing experience. My favorite thing, you know, that's my favorite thing, was mm -hmm. to walk around the outside of the turntable because there are five dream-finding, dream-catching machines and five dream-finders and five figments, and it was like running through the Flintstones house. <laughs> you know what I mean? The background wouldn't change. <laughs> and you keep walking around, and each one would be in a different state of repair or working or something like this. Uh... So one time I was walking through there, and I heard my name called from above, and I look up, and there's a guy I went to college with uh, was installing the, some of the special effects, and he came down and showed me some things and took me through. Uh, that was a lot of fun. The stuff that we could do in the ride that um, nobody else could do. Here's a fun story, kiddies. Uh, we were doing a TV special. I think it was one of the first Christmas specials after uh, Epcot opened, and they wanted to have uh, footage of Dreamfinder walking through the dream part where the cl all the different abstract sparks of inspiration were. And um, so I showed up middle of the night and they um, put me, we had one suit that didn't have figment attached to it. And it's one of the few times I got to wear it. And uh, so I'm, we're going to have me walking through the dream port and, and reflecting on the process of imagination and the wonders that will be coming there when they come to visit. And of course I immediately flashed on the footage of Walt walking through Wed talking about the rides when we were kids that just tore me up but they put me put a, a wireless mic on me a lavalier mic now the lavalier mic for those of you who don't know is a battery pack with a transmitter in it and then from that runs a long wire at the end of which is that little microphone that you'll sometimes see paper clip to your celebrity's vest when they're out talking so i had this uh, this battery pack uh taped to my chest under my shirt, and I put on the shirt and vest, and then the microphone was um, right on top of, of that, right by my mouth. And we're getting ready to shoot this thing, and they turned on all the special effects in the image works, or the uh, dream port, and there's these enormous spark jars. You see them all the time in novelty stores, mm -hmm. but these were immense. You know, these were six feet tall. And so now we're rolling film, and I come walk, strolling up, and I'm all happy and, and welcome to my home. And I get to the giant spark jar, and a visible spark of electricity is jumping from the battery pack into my chest. <laughs> drilling in there. Very, very, very painful, mind I quickly get away from the spark jar, and we're trying to figure out how we're going to get me strolling past the spark jar without killing me. So finally, they, they taped a giant piece of foam core 
to my chest, and they, so the, and they put the battery pack on that, and I was safe. And I walked through this thing, and we got the film, and it was really nice. So now, flash ahead, about two months, I'm at home on a Sunday morning watching television and they're doing this live broadcast from the Orlando Science Center, and they're going to do a whole special about static electricity. And they've got uh, two classrooms of kids, about uh, second and third graders there, and they're all going to be part of the fun. And they've got one little girl up there, and they're going to show her what a Tesla coil is, and they've got the big silver ball, you know, and the Jacob's Ladder, and all the things that generate uh, static electricity. And I suddenly noticed that she's wearing a lavalier mic. And I realized I'm the only person in Orlando that knows what's, what's about to happen. <laughs> and so they said, Shelly, now when we turn this on, you touch this, you won't feel anything, but your hair will stand up straight. So they turned the thing on. This little girl had a big smile on her face right up until that moment. <laughs> Suddenly the smile disappears. And she starts looking around. Very, she, does, she doesn't want to make a scene because she's on television. So her eyes are darting around trying to think of, oh, what can I say? What can I say? She never said anything. She took it for the whole minute wow. and a half. She was on camera. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, I've got to call someone. I've got to stop this from happening. But I was also laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry to say but uh, when, the, when the attraction closed in 1998 and reopened uh, a year later as Journey into Your Imagination, obviously, most notably absent was the Dream Finder and Figment. Um, Figment eventually comes back along with Dr. Nigel Channing. Um, I, I can, you know, I'm sure I, I know what your feelings probably were, but how did you feel when you, find, when you found out they were going to refurb the attraction and that your characters were no longer going to be a part of it? Uh, fleeting glory. Um, I am not one of these purists or preservationists. I believe that theme parks must evolve and must change. I'm always anxious to see what the Imagineers are going to show me next. I don't uh, pretend to dictate what they should do or how they should do it, because these are people whose job it is to spend years researching these stories and researching technologies and then surprising me. So I was uh, I, I was going to Mr. Finder Figment, but by that time, by that time, mind you, I hadn't been doing the character for 11 years, and um, I'd been to the the place, I'd seen it, and I had pictures taken with all the Dreamfinders, but I was ready to see what they were going to do to top it. Uh, I knew that the Kodak um, lease was up, and that they were uh, they were entitled to a, a redesign. Um, now I have a friend of mine who uh, was working, I believe, as a um, uh, uh, as an assistant at Imagineering, and he worked, he revealed to me years later, that he worked on the Imagination Redo. He will not, to this day, tell me why it turned <laughs> out like that. What I've been able to gather is that the ride was a lot different and a lot better, but it got nickel and dimed. Hmm. Uh, Dreamfinder and Figment were never going to be in it, um, Eisner was not a fan of either character, apparently. Um, did not like Dreamfinder. So uh, I knew that they probably weren't going to be around. I knew that Figment would survive probably as merchandise, which he has, and come into his own recently. And then even knew some representations of uh, Dreamfinder, which is I find very amusing. I was as disappointed as anybody. It was my understanding that at the time, they got more negative response from guests about that mm. one attraction than anything else in the history of uh, Disney theme parks. Well, I mean, the fan outpouring was very evident. It wasn't just from the hardcore fans. It was from all the fans. But fortunately, at least to a certain degree, Disney listened. Although, like you said, the character of Figment that they've brought back 
isn't that same type of pure, innocent character that was there. And, and he's still beloved, uh, but, but he's lost a little bit something in the translation as, as it's gone on. Well, he, the character, first of all, he's, um, he's not designed like your standard Disney character. He's got a lot of angles. He's not circles, like Mickey. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a little bit wild. Um, when they, you know, the, when they very first time they took Figment to a party, when they were uh, creating the puppet for the first time out in California, long before Imagination opened, they took the Figment puppet out to children's birthday parties a couple times, and just to see how the kids would react to him. And they had a ventriloquism running him, and um, the ventriloquist would try to approximate the Billy Barney voice, and the kids were scared to death. That's why Figment never spoke in person. Hmm. because the look with the eyes and the horns and the beak was so so strong that the voice was just unnecessary and was a little bit frightening. So the design is a little bit non-Disney, which I think is part of the attraction. He's known as a rebel, um, being a, a wild character. He's an easy person to create merchandise for because he's into everything. Uh, this last... Uh, at pin events that they had at Epcot, I bought a wonderful set. And I'm not a pin collector, kids, but I bought a wonderful set called Figment World, which had uh, pins of all the different parks, but as they would look if Figment ruled the world. So the centerpiece of the whole thing is a is the statue of partners with Walt holding Figment's hand. Wow. And Figment, you know, engenders that kind of creativity among the artists because he is just, there's no stopping him. He can do absolutely mm-hmm. anything. And uh, artists love that kind of inspiration. The other thing that Figment had going for him was the fact that he is a rebel. It's, um, it's I think they like Figment because he's got that, uh, that rebel uh, with a cause feeling to him. Yeah, I know you, you were talking about the artists I like to draw, and I know some people from the Disney Design Group who say they love designing pins for Figment because they really, they're able to kind of go outside the box a little bit than what they're able to do with the traditional characters, especially like the Fab Five. They can really get very, very creative with them. You saw the sets with uh, Goofy and Chippendale, and everybody's dressed up as, as Dreamfinder. Right. <laughs> that really broke me up. I, for this last Christmas, I had like five different people who gave me the Mickey and Figment dolls. <laughs> the, the funny thing about that was they found them at the discount store for three bucks because they were the ugliest things yeah, well, ever you know, made. That was kind of the first time I saw because I, I had spoken to somebody from Disney at one point who years ago said to me said Dreamfinder is dead and that's a term that they never use for a character and then when he is finally reincarnated he comes back as this sort of odd looking plush figure that reminded me of those um, the, the the Christmas stop the, the Christmas time stop motion animation with Yukon Cornelius that's who he looked uh-huh. like to me as opposed <laughs> to me in the Dreamfinder but uh, they started to release other merchandise, and they, they, the, the big fig um, with, with Dreamfinder and Figment was, was just wonderful. So hopefully it's, it's a trend towards bringing these characters back in. But I, I had one question about um, kind of, it might be urban legend, it, it might be rumor, but supposedly there, there's this lost Dreamfinder film that was created um, possibly for the pavilion that never saw the light of day or maybe never was actually created. Is, is, did such a thing ever exist, or was it ever something that was on the drawing board? Oh, yeah. Two weeks before I came to Florida, I was uh, lying in bed one early Saturday, Saturday morning, and I got a call uh, from someone at Disney. It may have been Tony Baxter. I'm not sure. Calls me up and says, Ron, we need you in Florida. I said, I know. I'll be there in two weeks. He said, no, no, no. We need you today. 
<laughs> and that afternoon, I'm on a plane and I'm flying to Orlando. Uh, not quite sure what I'm going to see. Turns out that um, the well, they weren't sure the ImageWorks was going to be ready. Uh, in fact, it was probably not going to be ready for opening day. Uh, the ride was certainly not going to be ready. And the third element of the attraction was Murray Lerner's wonderful film. Um, the Magic Journeys. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was never really a fan. Um, and if they didn't have at least one of those three attractions up for opening day, Kodak could walk uh, or behave poorly in some other way. So uh, they, not, not knowing if that film was going to be up, they had to have something in that theater. So they called a fellow by the name of Mike Jitlove. Everybody run now to your search engines <laughs> and type in Mike Jitlove, J-I-T-T-L-O-V. Mike Jitlove is the Wizard of Speed and Time, and he'd done a lot of animation, wonderful stop-motion animation for the early Disney Channel. And you'll recognize him because he always wears a green robe with a hood and this manic smile on his face. And the man is, was, and always will be a genius. They went to him and said, we need this uh, a film for imagination that will promote the ride, will show them that we're getting the thing ready, and we'll have clips from Murray Lerner's film. So they flew me out that day to do uh, uh, on-location clips of me as Dreamfinder with Figment walking through the um, under-construction imagination pavilion. So the next day, I'm thrown into the most primitive version of the character I ever wore. And the puppet we were using was the same puppet that they'd used years before in the groundbreaking. It looked very little like the current character. Uh, you, you will have seen in just about any Epcot uh, retrospective this shot of me and Figment walking through the sensor uh, tunnel. Right. And um, the, my beard is extremely large, and <laughs> Figment and I are walking along, and I'm pointing and smiling. And that was taken that day. We shot a lot of footage of me walking around the construction site and uh, walking through uh, different parts of the ride. Um, and then the next day, I was flying back to uh, California. And they, uh, the next three days, we spent at WED shooting footage with Mike Jitlove. Now, Mike Jitlove was one of my heroes at that time. I was a film student for a while. And so the uh, second I met him, I knew exactly what we were in for and what he was going to want to do. And uh, so I put that same manic smile he did on, and uh, what they basically did was they shot me running at extreme high speeds through various areas of WDD that had been set up to show the work being done, not only on imagination, but stuff that was being done to, for different parts of the upgrades in the parks and like this. And I got to meet all the people at WED, and I got to run through these sets and um, make a tremendous scene. I, I was they shot one thing of me to talking to the Figment puppet. I didn't know why, so I was just, <laughs> I don't know what I was saying back then. Um, and it was just, it was three days of just, with a joy to do, mind you. But in order to do the construction that they do on those floors, the floors at WED are like very, very, very hard concrete. They don't give it all. And if you're pounding across them for three days and you're not in any shape, brother, I couldn't move a muscle. I was in <laughs> such pain. You wouldn't believe. One of the last shots he wanted was me running up this flight of 20 stairs. And I turned to Mike and I went, you're going to get this twice, so you better, <laughs> you better get it right. Uh, but they shot this thing. They put it together. 
uh, it was, they had a screening at um, the, the screening room over at Disney Studios, and I got invited, and there were all the people who worked on it. And I just, the character didn't look right to me. The, the, it, was, it was just too, it looked like it had been thrown together. When the show was over, I walked by Mike Jitlove, and he congratulated me. He later wrote me a letter said, you look like you'd been hit by a truck. <laughs> and that's pretty much how I felt. I knew that I didn't want this to be people's first impression of the characters, that if whatever was going to happen to us, and mind you, I wasn't sure myself, but I knew it didn't look like the robot, and I knew that um, I wasn't wild about it. Well, it turns out Murray Lerner heard, oh, they're going to put what in my theater? And he finished Magic Journeys in Time, and that's what opened with the attraction. Hmm. And the film has never been seen, seen the light of day. If you go to Mike Jit Love's page, kiddies, uh, you will find, I think there's four different stills from that film um, in there uh, that you can uh, take a look at and click on it and keep for yourself as, with my compliments. Great. Excellent. Well, I guess two, two final questions. What, what's the Dream Finder doing now? Well, as a matter of fact, excuse me, for, as a matter of fact, um, I'm uh, back uh, working in entertainment uh, with the Disney organization. Uh, you might have heard about the big upheaval at Monsters Incorporated. They found out that monsters can create more power from laughs than they can from screams. And so uh, my boss, Mike Wazowski, opened a comedy club in Monstropolis. If you go into Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom and you turn right, you'll see this place. They got the door there where you can walk through the door right into Monstropolis and visit um, the Last Floor Comedy Club. They've taken one of the uh, scare floors from the Monsters Incorporated factory and turned it into a stand-up comedy club. And I'm working with um, a collection of uh, semi-talented monsters who are trying to do stand-up. Uh, it's a wild job, and um, a lot of the same elements as uh, improvising with uh, Figment and meeting the kids. Um, people pop up on the screens, though, so when I'm seeing the audience, uh, they're pretty much on television. Uh, but it's just that's a lot of fun. The other people working uh, with the monsters are just the funniest. we got about 25 of us now. Just the funniest, most creative, uh, quick people you'll ever want to meet. And um, on top of which, uh, you know, the monster world, the technology is just astounding. So uh, the, with Pixar's help, and we're just starting to get the thing, the thing up. You know, we've, uh, we've been open now for about seven, eight months. And every couple of months they come in and they improve this thing. So if you saw this thing in previews, folks, and you read the online reviews, um, it's time to go back and visit it again because we're now at about 500% uh, better than we were in the previews. Well, Ron, I, I want to say how happy I am that you're still with the company and that you are sharing your creativity and your talents with uh, another generation of children as well as people like me and so many of us that are still kids at heart. Um, we really appreciate what you've done in the past as Dreamfinder and bringing these characters to life and just how important they've become to us and to Epcot and to Disney as a whole. Well, it's my pleasure. Oh, well, can I say hello to my pen pal in, ben, in Bellevue? Uh, just this little message I had to put out there. <laughs> and Sigmund and I have enjoyed our journey into imagination with you. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. My sincere thanks to Mr. Jim McPhee, Vice President of Epcot, for taking time to come on the show and discuss Epcot's 25th anniversary, and to Ron Schneider for sharing his memories of being the dream finder for so many years. Visit the show notes page at wdwradio.com for some photos that Ron has shared, as well as links to more information about Celebration 25 and the Epcot anniversary. If you're looking to book your next Disney vacation to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, or on the Disney Cruise Line, and want that same level of Disney service, quality, and personal attention, I highly recommend contacting my friends over at The Magic for Less Travel. For the best possible price, personalized vacation planning, and so much more, visit our show notes page for the link over to themagicforlesstravel.com. I want to give a special hello to Marissa and all of the athletes on her U.S. Special Olympics equestrian team. This week, they're headed to Shanghai, China for almost three weeks to compete in the 2007 Special Olympics World Summer Games. I want to let all the athletes know how proud we all are of them, wish them the best of luck, and know that they're all winners in our hearts. And a special thanks to all the dedicated coaches and support staff who's going to be accompanying them. Good luck, everybody, and have fun. As always, don't forget to please keep emailing the show and calling in your voicemails. You can email me at lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. That's 206-202-4939. As always, come by our fun and friendly forums at disneyworldtrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney. And as always, if you like the show, please help spread the word. Thank you again to my guests and thanks to you for tuning in again this week. I really hope you enjoy the show. So until next week... I'll see ya. Well, our journey's come to an end. I want to thank our guests and all of you for traveling with me from Marceline to Epcot Center. And while our journey may be over, I think it's pretty obvious that one man's dream is a never-ending process. See you here in 1982 on opening day. Well, there's no question in my mind that Epcot Center will be ready. They can do it. They had a great teacher. <laughs>